0: Well, brethren, today I want to uh, really explain a a very vital uh, scripture. I don't normally do this. We normally have a topic study, as you know. But I've been wanting to do this for some time. It's on the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is one of the least understood books in the entire New Testament. And I found that back in Worldwide, and even some of the ministers never explained it correctly and I started the Epistles to Paul class. I'm the one that introduced that into the curriculum of Ambassador College in the autumn of 1953. Dr. Hay and I were given the entire theology department. And Mr. Armstrong got so busy that he had us teach the Bible classes. And he did teach the sex class. And he talked about everything but sex for the several years he would talk. <laughs> he was more embarrassed about sex than the students were. <laughs> and, and so we, he would sometimes read out of this book the last few few uh, weeks of the class he talked about uh, principles of success so we decided to change the title of the class to principles of living so he taught that class but anyway having had that opportunity to teach the epistles of paul class i have enjoyed having that and i haven't taught it now for quite a number of years but i wanted to get back to that because i found On the baptizing tours, I went on a baptizing tour in 1951 with Raymond McNair and with Burke McNair, his younger brother, in 1952. And in 1953, I took Dr. Hay out on a baptizing tour for half the summer and uh, later others because Dr. Hay was my senior in academic things, but I was his senior in working with people and situations and baptizing tours and all that kind of thing. And I found that the most oft questions or most understood parts of the entire new testament were the books of romans and galatians always something about the epistles of paul almost always and galatians was even harder to explain than romans and i'd like to go through the whole book of romans but that would take a long time but i thought it would be good in a two-part series to cover galatians so that's what i plan to do because it is a very important book to understand Brethren, it's one of the books in the Bible that the Protestants use against God's law. They use this book and twist its message to try to do away with God's law. And they say Paul did away with the law of God. And the scriptures they mainly use, of course, to do that are various passages in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, plus a few other places, but not too many, mainly in those books. So we need to understand... Many of us older ones here had years or decades in the worldwide Church of God. And we are really sorry that thousands and thousands of our brethren just got mixed up and left. They just plumb left the whole truth and went back into the world and other fellowships and one thing and the other. all got all confused because partly because they were able to have their minds and their understanding twisted by a misuse of passages in the books of Romans and Galatians. So we do need to understand, and I hope you will do that so you can help people. Some of our own brethren may be facing that later. You never know. They just hear things, and it's easy for people to get mixed up. But anyway, let's turn, first of all, to get into this, back to 2 Peter. You'll see why I'm turning there when you see what I'm covering. Turn to 2 Peter, if you would, the last letter the Apostle Peter wrote before his death, certainly the last one recorded in the Bible, 2 Peter, and I want to begin reading in 2 Peter chapter 3, and beginning in verse 14. 2 Peter three fourteen, Peter writes in this very last part of his very last letter. It's interesting how God guided him to put this in right at the end. He said, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, he's been talking about the day of the Lord and the new heavens and the new earth. Let us be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. And account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. God is taking time to work with people. He's giving a lot of people a lot of time to figure things out and to figure out what they ought to do and what they are where they ought to be and to straighten their lives out before Christ's coming. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord of salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some, some things hard to understand. That's interesting. Nowhere else in the Bible does someone else evaluate someone else's letters. Go look for it. It ain't there, <laughs> using the vernacular here. But God inspired Peter... Right at the end of Peter's life, right near the end of the New Testament period, to give us an inspired warning. People twist Paul's writings. God gives us that warning. Now, how do they twist Paul's writings? Let's keep reading right here. And many things hard to be understood or hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist. They twist and pervert the Bible To their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So, what is Peter telling us? He's telling us that Paul's letters were scriptures. He's putting his validation as the senior apostle, the main one Paul, God used at first in the Jewish church to say Paul's writings were scriptures. You therefore, beloved, verse 17, since you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of lawless men. You turn to the New International Version. You turn to a number of other versions. You look it up in a commentary. You look it up in an interlinear, particularly all commentaries don't point it out. Some few do. The inspired Greek is lawless men. Was Peter talking about traffic laws? (laughs) They didn't have any uh, cars. They just had donkeys and ox carts back there. He wasn't talking about that. These are men that turned away from God's law. And these men were apparently using Paul's letters to strengthen that argument, very obviously. So God inspired Peter near the end of his life to show that men twist these very letters, the letter I'm about to read to you, To do away with God's law. They are lawless men. And we have to understand that. But grow. Don't go off with this kind of stuff. But grow. Keep growing in in, in grace and knowledge and understanding as we're trying to do in the living church of God. And those of you who've been attending a few years see that. You know that. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him is the glory both now and forever. Amen. So we need to understand that Peter gave an inspired warning that lawless men would twist Paul's writings. And that's exactly what happened, of course, as we see from the future and what happened to God's church back in that time and how the great apostasy, the first great apostasy took over at that point. And then another great apostasy more recently when the Tkachas came in with their wrecking machine and began to wreck everything that Christ had built Uh, Through Mr. Armstrong And a number of us Helping him during those years And I've said before And I don't apologize for that You know uh, I was one of the main ones Helping Mr. Armstrong All those years I was called the second vice president And Ted was first vice president I was second vice president Herman Hay was the main editor And we were helping Mr. Armstrong Build this work for decades More than any other man And now God has allowed me To help carry on that work and I hope people can understand that when I talk about it, it's my work, I'm upset about what happened back there. I devoted my entire adult life to building that work, and they came along and just tore it to pieces. and that's a terrible shame. But at any rate, so men have twisted Paul's writings. Now since we're here, let's turn right across the page just a little background to First John. You're right before First John here at Second Peter, First John two. He says in verse 3, Now by this we know that we know Him. How do we know God if we keep His commandments? As I've said, you may know about God The Pope knows about God. Billy Graham knows about God, but they don't really know God. You don't understand God. You are not acquainted with God fully unless you keep God's commandments, unless you, through Christ in you, exercise the character to walk with God and see what that is like. Then you become to know God. You don't just know about Him, you know Him. Verse 4, He who says, I know Him, and does not keep, not just know about but keep his commandments, plural, all of them, all ten of them, including the Sabbath, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's what God says. That was the last, the last uh, uh, spiritual uh, uh, letters written by the apostles. So if there had been some progressive revelation to do away with God's law, as some of the Protestants try to say, why did John? The apostles Jesus loved do exactly the opposite. He says over and over you ought to keep God's commandments, plural. Notice chapter 3, verse 22. 1 John 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We have to keep His commandments, Chapter 5. By this we know, this is verse 2, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Plural. For this is, we say, oh, well, we just need to have love. Let's just have love. Yes, that's right. That we do need to have love. But what is love? What kind of love is the Bible talking about? This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Plural. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not too hard. So, as I've explained, you know, if you had gone to Ambassador College, as Mr. Partin and Dr. Manale and Mr. Ames and I and others have done, I think the easiest commandment to keep was the Sabbath. Because all week long, you couldn't kill or hate, you couldn't lust even, you couldn't lie, you couldn't water things down and tell white lies or anything else like that in the letter or the Spirit. But once a week, you got to rest, Boy, what a burden. (laughs) That's the easiest commandment to keep and will be the easiest in tomorrow's world when everyone keeps it. It's not a burden. But anyway, that's what God says. So does Paul contradict this final letter of John? And does Paul contradict all the other things he wrote? And does Paul contradict the very plain, clear teachings of Jesus Christ Himself in the book of Galatians or Romans or anywhere else? Of course not. Most of you know that Paul himself had a lot of very uh, clear statements about the commandment keeping. 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, Paul wrote, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's what Paul said. So we have to uh, remember that he wrote many, many other things showing we ought to keep. That's just one that comes to mind and I thought I would quote that from memory but not having taught the epistles class for about 20 years and having a stroke about 16 months ago and all the other horrible things well i you know uh, everyone tells me my mind works pretty good and my my wife says my mind works really good except when i disagree with her so then i'm in trouble (laughs) anyway so i'll have to have to remember these scriptures better anyway so paul does not contradict all those things Another thing I want you to give you is background material. I better not spend too much time on the background because we've got a lot of scriptures to cover. But Paul, brethren, most all scholars know, was trained, as you read in Philippians, he was trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of Pharisees of that time. And he tells about that in the book of Acts as well. He was trained in detail in the technicalities of the Jewish law all that system of their laws. And so Paul was most capable of writing about that, even more than Peter and the others. But that's one reason he was able to and did write things hard to be understood. And why did God let Paul do that? Well, because Jesus Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father draw him. And because he said the Bible is written here a little and there a little, so they may go forward and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken, you know, back in Isaiah god did not intend for everybody to understand god is not trying to call everyone now he lets them have it just enough fuzzy stuff to hang themselves as that's what they want to do you know if he'd written the bible roman numeral one two three and abc and repeat the ten commandments all over and repeat the sabbath all over several times in the old and the new testament they wouldn't have an excuse but paul wrote it and god wrote the bible where people could hang themselves if that's what they want to do under Satan's influence, of course. So God allowed this to happen. And we need to understand God's purpose in that. Now, let's go back to a little background here, if you would, at this point, to Acts chapter 13. Turn back to Acts 13. And here, brethren, you see how Paul, after he was struck down, began to meet with the brethren. Barnabas invited him back to Antioch in Syria. Later there was a separate Antioch over in Asia Minor, which we call Turkey today. But in the church that was at Antioch, Acts 13 1, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, he's mentioned first because he was already serving God and, and knew the other leading apostles and was a leading person. And then it mentions these other people. Simeon called Niger. Apparently a black man was there as a leader. Lucius of Cyrene, Maonan, and Saul. Saul is mentioned last, because he was the newest one. He was the last man on the totem pole at that. As they ministered to the eternal and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul. So at the beginning, it's always Barnabas and Saul, and Saul is mentioned second. Until finally he grabbed the lead, and God inspired him to take the lead when this false prophet stood up against them on Cyprus, and from then on it' was called Paul and his company. Paul became the leader at that point. But at any rate, God separated them, and you see the stories you keep reading, and, and uh, you see how they were, in fact apostles in chapter 14, verse four, uh, why it says, "The multitude of the city was divided, part-sided with the Jews, and part with the apostles plural." And verse 14, Acts 4, verse 14, verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and so on. So they were both apostles by this time. So God caused uh, Saul to go out on a visiting tour to raise up churches to preach the truth here to the Gentiles. And uh, so he did begin to do that. And you'll notice that they went here to first uh, Cyprus and then uh, they they set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. If you look up a Bible map, this is what we would call southern the southern coast of Turkey today. And John, departing from them, young John Mark deserted them. He got homesick or something and went back home, returned to Jerusalem. But then, when they parted from Perga, they came to Antioch. That's in central Turkey today. And Pisidia, they went to the synagogue. Always they preached on the Sabbath day so the people who heard them weren't just people out in the street. They weren't hollering in the street. They would meet in the synagogue with the Jews and with those Gentiles who were what is called God-fears. That is, they sensed that the Jews had a true God, the Creator God, and they were already disaffected with their pagan gods and saw that the Jews' religion made sense. And so Paul was able to reach them. They already had some knowledge of the Old Testament. And so then Paul stood up, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. And so on, he said. He went all through. Then if you follow this in chapters 13 and 14, these cities are all in what we call Turkey today in Asia Minor. That was the area that is sometimes called Galatia. And if you read some commentaries, remember the commentaries, we use them for ideas. But brethren, they were all written by unconverted men. They were written by Catholics or Church of England scholars or Protestant scholars. And they will make, of course, horrible mistakes. But they some of them say that Galatia was way up north where you read where Paul actually went and where he's obviously referring right back to. He's referring to what we call southern Galatia. And those are the people he's writing to. And they were the first ones converted because this may have been I'm not saying it was, and when I get into this, recognize this is not inspired. What I'm telling you out of the Bible is inspired, but our dates are not always set. Sometimes we learn and we grow in that, as I have through the years. But Galatians may have been the very first book written by Paul, the very first letter written by Paul, as a matter of fact. A number of scholars believe that. And I didn't used to understand that but the last few years I've come to see that that probably was the first letter written because he had these people he was converting in in, uh, in what we call Asia Minor or, or Pisidia and these areas. And then he tur- heard they turned aside so quickly so he writes right back powerfully to straighten them out. And you'll notice here, here in chapter uh, uh, 13, verse 12, "...let it be known to you, brethren, that through the man, this man has preached the forgiveness of sin..." And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses, and so on. And then he follows through with that same kind of wording and writing back to them later and helping straighten them out because they've fallen away from that understanding. So the Galatians he's writing to are these very cities of Pergam, Pamphylia, and uh, so on, and Antioch at Pisidia that he had reached on this visiting tour, this evangelistic tour in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And so then finally they left. In verse 25 of chapter 14, when they preached the word in Perga, they came down to Atalia. This is southern Turkey today. And from there they sailed to Antioch. Not back to Antioch at Pisidia. They had to sail back to the original Antioch in Syria, which was their home base for the, the Gentile work. And when they'd come together, they gathered the church and reported all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so they stayed there a long time. Apparently a couple of years. The indication, brethren, is if you want to write these things down, this may be a good sermon to take notes on more than normal, but you have to figure out whether you want to do this or not. But the indication is the Apostle Paul was converted. He was struck down and blinded about 35 A.D. And so most of these dates refer back to 35 A.D. when Paul was struck down and blinded. And then about 10 years later in approximately 45 A.D. he was ordained an apostle. But you know in between he had various things happen and went back for several years to uh, the area we call Turkey back to Tarsus and so on. So anyway that was the background in the book of uh, Acts that part of it. And then you turn to Acts 15, which comes later, and they had the Jerusalem Conference, which I feel probably took place in about December 49 A.D., for you note-takers, December 49 A.D. Could have been late November, could have been before, or after, probably about December 49 A.D. We don't know the exact month. I'm just guessing, trying to put things together. And certain men came down from Judea after Paul had come back home from this visiting tour, and they came down to uh, Antioch in Syria, to that headquarters church of the Gentile work. And they said, "...unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved." This is the key. What was their message? They Where were they from? They came down from Judea. They came down probably from Jerusalem. Now, they weren't Peter and James and John They professed, perhaps, some of them to come from them, but they didn't, of course. We see the rest of the Bible contradicts that clearly. But they came down, they were hardcore Jews. They were hardcore Jews who weren't willing to follow the full truth of the gospel. And they said, you can't be a complete 100% first-class Christian unless you are circumcised. All you Gentiles, even you grown men who haven't been circumcised, have to go through that very painful operation. But anyway, you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, or you cannot be saved. Did God ever say that? No. But what is that called, brethren? What is that called? That is the law of Moses. I don't have five hours to tell you all of this. I'd like to do that. But there are several laws. I intend to write an up-to-date article. Dr. Hay had one, and we were talking at lunch the other day. I hope I can do that with the help of Mr. Ames and Dr. Van and put the thing together correctly. But we'd like to have a whole article or maybe a whole booklet on which laws of the Old Testament are still valid and why. And why. But at any rate, this is the law of Moses. This was not the spiritual Ten Commandments at all. If they had tried to teach against that, and you need to understand that, brethren, even about the Sabbath argument, there would have been an absolute uprising. You talk about the little hullabaloo covered over the Jerusalem conference because of circumcision, that would have seemed like an old lady's tea party by comparison with what would have happened if they tried to change one of the Ten Commandments. They weren't changing the Ten Commandments. They were changing that one statute regarding circumcision or making people do that. They weren't changing God's basic spiritual law at all. They just said you got to be circumcised to be a 100% Christian. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument with them here, and so then they decided to go up to the apostles and and the brethren at Jerusalem about that, and they went on up there. So, at that point, they had what we call the Jerusalem Conference. And it says in verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, they believed in Christ, but they didn't have it straight. They rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to keep what? The Ten Commandments? No, to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. They weren't told not to keep the Ten Commandments, but to keep the law of Moses. That is the whole thing involving, when you understand all of it, there is a whole legal system a whole legal system. It involved circumcision. It involved animal sacrifices, mournings, all kinds of washings. I mean, day and night, and lots of other things that had been added. One of the laws of the Gentiles forbid uh, the Jews to associate with Gentiles. That wasn't in the Bible, but you read that in uh, in this uh, Galatians where that was happened because Peter said or Paul said you were taught that and. So on And, of course, that was not part of the Bible. That wasn't even part of the law of God put in the Bible. This was stuff the Jews had added. The whole system is what he's talking about. That's the thing most people don't understand. It's not just the animal sacrifices or the animal sacrifices and the washings. It was the whole ball of wax, the whole system. And that's what they were trying to bring people under. And Paul is refuting that in the book of Galatians. Okay, now let's turn to Galatians. I'd like to give you a lot more of this. When I taught this in the Epistles of Paul class, I usually took three to five hours. Uh, you know, I had, I could take as many classes as I needed to and then try to speed up on the easier books, but we had, we had, uh, 45 hours of instruction, I guess, each semester, so you had 90 hours to cover the books and I had more time on, a, on Galatians if I needed it. Let's get to Galatians itself. Galatians itself here, uh, written probably about 49 A.D., probably written about November 49 A.D. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So here is the apostle Paul with all this background of training under Gamaliel, and all the technical knowledge he had of God's law, who was by this time the chief apostle over the Gentile work, as Peter was chief apostle over the work toward the Jews. And all the brethren with me, to the churches of Galatia, and these were not unknown churches up north nobody had ever heard of, they were obviously the churches Paul had just helped raise up on that tour, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, brethren, you've heard me say this, but as I taught epistles, I learned so many things through the years. Over and over and over, Paul opens each letter like that. What is he leaving out? Over and over, always, the Holy Spirit. He never says greetings from the Holy Spirit. He mentions the two persons, the two personages in God. And the Holy Spirit is not a person, and he never, ever, ever mentions the Holy Spirit as a person because it's not. He just leaves that out. That would be a gross insult, you see, if the Holy Spirit were a person. That's just one of the in many indirect proofs the Holy Spirit is not a person. There is no Trinity. God is a duality. At this point, the Father and the Son, but God is a family, and we're going to be born into that family. So, peace from God the Father and our Lord, our personal Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That was an evil age. They had open fornication and sexual orgies in certain parts of the Roman Empire. And they had men fighting in these uh, uh, pits and in these uh, coliseums, you know, with wild animals. It was not a good age at all. We're in an age that's just as evil, but we do it in a different way. An evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel, get this, that you're uh, turning away so soon. Who is turning away so soon? Well, the people he just got through visiting back in Acts 13 and 14. That's why he could write it that way. He knew that. He knew that church, those churches. He had raised them up a few months ago maybe a year and a half or two years ago, and they were turning away already from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And yes, we are called in grace, in God's mercy, and we're to teach about grace, and that is not wrong, which is not another. There's no other gospel, but there are some who trouble you. And Paul, as you read through this letter, brethren, without me explaining it every time you can see, he wasn't actually sure who these guys were. He sensed they, who they were, but he didn't know. He didn't name specific ones. There are other times he names Hymenus and Alexander and some bad guys in some of his letters. He wasn't sure who these guys were. Some are troubling you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Just like Paul warned or like Peter warned, they would pervert Paul's own writings. Then he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven, he's very strong. He wasn't bashful preach any other gospel to you than that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul was uh, very strong in his early ministry. I think he melted a little bit toward the end, but boy, he said some very strong things in some of those early letters. He didn't mess around. As we've said before, so I now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God... Or do I seek to please men? No, brethren, we can't please men. We could get a lot more people following us if we would water down the whole way of life that we teach and water down the Ezekiel warning. We're trying with all our heart to get all over the world to warn modern Israel of what's about to happen. But we can't do that. We can't water things down just to please men. For if I still please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. And throughout this, by the way, brethren, the Greek word here is d-o-u-l-o-s, doulos, which means bondslave. Paul considered himself a bondslave of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ directly appeared, as you see through other passages in the Bible, plus what's here. He appeared in a kind of powerful vision or maybe it was actually real he came down from heaven and just spent time with Paul but certainly in a certain way where Paul in effect saw him off and on for about a three year period he personally taught Paul Barnabas didn't have that and later apostles no doubt didn't have that there may have been other apostles in the apostolic age we know of at least 17 apostles in that age we had the 12 original ones then Matthias replaced Judas when they appealed to God the Holy Spirit wasn't yet given, so they weren't voting. They just had a, they never voted ever, but they had this appeal to God, which He did honor before the Holy Spirit came and God showed through that casting of lots. Matthias was to be the one to replace Judas. That's 13. And then you have Paul and Barnabas. That's 15. And then you have the two brothers of Jesus Christ, James and Jude. That's 17. So we know there were at least 17 apostles back then. But at any rate, he was taught directly by Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God. Here it is, one of the twelve places where the true church is called, in the Bible, the church of God. It's never called the church of England, or the Lutheran church, or the Methodist church, (laughs) you know, obviously. It's called the church of God twelve times beyond measure and tried to destroy it you know how Paul was persecuting men and women putting them in prison and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers what was he zealous for he wasn't as zealous for what God really revealed through Christ he didn't understand that he went to these traditions so he understood where they were going they were going back into Judaism and he knew that was wrong that's what he would had to repent of but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb God directly called him as he did Jeremiah if you read back in Jeremiah 1 verse 5 if you read all the time carefully it kind of shows you that abortion is a sin God called these young boys while they were yet in their mother's womb they were human beings And God began to deal with them already when they were not yet born and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. He didn't go up and talk to Peter and James and John and and Bartholomew and all the other apostles up there, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia, So he went to Arabia and returned again to Jerusalem. Then after three years, probably most of the three years were in Arabia. You find later first Paul came back to Damascus and so on. And I won't have time to go through the whole book of Acts and tie these two things together. But at least most of that three years or probably all but was in Arabia. He was trained for three years over there by Christ. And when he says after... He meant, since his calling, everything indicates that once Paul was called, he counts everything back. And let me say this in case I forget to later. Paul had an awesome event. You talk about a life-changing event. When he was going along into Damascus, he was struck down by God and blinded. And his whole life, you know, wow, just changed around. 180-degree shift. And he always looks back on that as the supreme event in his life. When Christ struck him down, he dates these things right back to that time, 35 A.D., when he was converted. When God struck him down and blinded him. And then Ananias, a local member, was sent to talk to him and and heal him and baptize him. And he received the Holy Spirit right then. So he went into Arabia and came back three years after Uh, He had been struck down. I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Why did he go up to see Peter? Well, Peter was the leading apostle. And that's made very, very clear in the New Testament over and over again. There's no exception. They did have leaders. They weren't all so many yellow pencils. If Peter was the leading apostle, he went up to see him. But I saw none other except James, the Lord's brother, By the time Paul went up, James had been converted. The original James had his head chopped off, remember, in Acts chapter 12. Herod had executed him. Now concerning the things I write to you, I indeed, before God I do not lie. Then he went into Syria and Cilicia. He went back to his home city, Tarsus. You remember the book of Acts, how Paul began to rail against the Hellenists and against other problems the Jews had. And boy, he was... He was, uh, he was fiery <laughs> and he stirred things up. And they thought, we got to cool this thing. So they sent him home and he went back to, back home to Tarsus for a few years before he was brought back again. And I was unknown by faith to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they pre- hear, they were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. They said, wow, this guy's really been converted. And they glorified God and me then after 14 years all right you remember what i said a few minutes ago he's not counting three years plus 14 years the 14 years every one of these things when you study it and you get the chronology of acts and the chronology of galatians it points right back to that supreme turning point when paul was struck down uh coming in to uh damascus and uh I always remember being almost struck down coming into Damascus. I'm not trying to compare myself to Paul. It was kind of amusing because I thought back on it later. David John Hill and I had this trip around the world with these educators who were very carnal and we were spending day and night with them and, and, uh, but anyway, as we came into Damascus, they were smart. But they were very impractical, and of course, John and I were reading about prophecy and what's happening, and the the Baath rebellion was about to take place in Syria, and they didn't seem to understand that. And I said, "We better watch out." And pretty soon, as we entered the city, the outskirts of Damascus, we heard shots and even sounded like cannons. I said, "Oh, and we saw people racing by us." I said to the driver, "Turn around, and get out of here." They said, "Oh, what's wrong? What's wrong?" They didn't want. I said, "No, we better save your life. You better listen to me. The Baath rebellion's starting right now." And the driver nodded and he turned around and did what I said. As we got out to the edge of Damascus, coming up the hill where we just come in, why, well, there's a big tank blocking our way out already. The government was trying to block the, the uh, coup, the, the leaders of the coup in the city, you see. And they had this tank and our driver got out. I couldn't hear what he was saying in Arabic. He waved and said, they're tourists, American tourists, it's okay. They finally said and kind of waved us around. They had this big tank. The cannon, cannon pointed right at me. <laughs> so I had my experience coming into Damascus a little bit of type, a little bit different at that point. That was back in 1963. But these so-called smart professors, they were really dumb in a lot of ways. I, I had to realize how absolutely stupid and unreal some college professors can be if all they understand is the sex habits of a mosquito or whatever they happen <laughs> to be studying. <laughs> That's about all they know. They're not very real. Anyway, we had that experience. Well, going on, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus. And that was then uh, uh, a little uh, later. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation. That was probably... July 49 AD again I'm guessing putting it near there probably July during the summer all these things begin to happen during the year of 49 as I postulated so he made this private trip up and took uh Barnabas and Titus and talked with uh Peter and James about the gospel blessed by any means I might run or had run in vain Yet not even Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. He said they didn't make him get circumcised but the obvious indication was they realized he was Gentile and, and began to argue about it but apparently it hadn't been spread enough in the Jewish community to cause any persecution at that time. But this occurred because the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. These were probably hardcore Jews who were trying to accuse Paul of consorting with the Gentiles, you see, which they didn't like. We thought, we're the perfect people. Let's keep these Gentiles out. And these hardcore Jews were the main persecutors of the church at the beginning. And yet most of the church itself was Jewish, of course. You know, most of the, nearly all the original members were Jews, but their own fellow Jews turned on them, those who were not being converted to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. They did make uh, Titus get circumcised, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something... Now, why does Paul say this, you might ask? Well, there obviously was a sort of a, an attitude going on. Well, you're the kind of Johnny-come-lately apostle. We don't have to pay much attention to you. Mr. Armstrong went through that years ago. If you read his autobiography when well, they had these camp meetings or these services sometimes they'd put him last and, and that in the Sardis church was considered least if you, the big guy spoke first and they had another guy and then maybe you got get ten minutes was left I think I told you the story that happened to me one time in their church but I took advantage I wasn't used to that and I said well uh, you don't mind if I go a few minutes over, over and these guys kind of look funny. and I kept right on going <laughs> but that's another story Anyway, Mr. Armstrong used to be the tail end minister because they did not look, look. they tend to look down on him and so they regarded Paul as last and Paul has to kind of stand up for his own office in some of these things he's writing. So whoever they were, it makes no difference to me. God chose personal favoritism to no man for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. In other words, he didn't learn any more of the truth from them although he did respect their office. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, had been committed to me, he didn't say to me and Barnabas and Titus and uh, Timothy and and, uh, Epaphroditus and all the others, he said to me, there was one leader over that part of the work. Now, under Mr. Armstrong's time, we just had one leader, and we have today in the global and now living church of god because at that time there were two distinct parts of humanity the jewish part and the gentile part who would hardly speak to each other and you really needed two different works today you not only have not do not have that but you have instant communication all over the world and the world work works a lot better if you have one leader and as i've said we've already appointed mr ames as my successor so i'm not talking about me i might not be here But whatever happens, I hope Mr. Ames or Dr. Nail or Mr. Weston or Mr. Rod King or others like that might carry on in years to come in running the work of God. But there should be one man because otherwise you have confusion. You just have argument, politicking, and confusion. And so Paul, at that time, there were two works because Peter couldn't be over it all. In fact, even... Even Peter himself was off from Jerusalem for months or years at a time over northwestern Europe. They didn't have telephones, telegraph, certainly didn't have internet, so you couldn't have a constant communication with one headquarters. But it shows in your Bible that uh, they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me. He was the leader. As, the same way, the gospel for the jews the circumcised was to peter he was the unchallenged leader then they would get together at jerusalem and james in the later years of the work not at the beginning peter was over everything for 10 or 15 years but later james then was sort of the presiding uh, minister at at jerusalem and he would be the host of these conferences but peter and and uh, paul were the main ones often doing the speaking For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, again he says it under God's inspiration, a leader, one leader, who had been appointed, not elected, but appointed, also worked effectively toward me, toward the Gentiles. So he worked through Paul because obviously God had shown by the fruits that Paul was doing that work as the leader. And when James, Peter, as it is, Cephas, who was Peter, and John. See, they were the three pillars. The original James had died by this time. So when James, the Lord's brother, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, they were the three apostles, who were the leaders among the Jewish apostles, perceived the grace or the gift that had been given to me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So Barnabas was an apostle, but he was not the leader but he was an apostle and recognized that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. But when Peter had come to Antioch, and brethren, this is obviously Antioch and Syria on the western coast of uh, uh, of, of Syria there, and on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, to that Antioch, their headquarters of the church of the Gentiles, I withstood him to the face. So Peter was a powerful leader, but not a dictator. And Paul was a powerful leader and not a dictator. As we see today in our work today, every now and then Mr. Ames will correct me in, or Dr. Winnell will straighten me out on a technical point, or the Council of Elders will give balance to all of us and we're told to submit to one another... And yet you have to have leadership or you can't think he's done as you should do. But anyway, before certain came from uh, when Peter had come, I withstood him because he was to be blamed. Peter got a little weak. Now, when was this letter written? Again, I feel this letter was probably written before the Jerusalem conference. If the Jerusalem conference had already taken place, this letter would not have been written, if you follow me. So that gives you an idea when the letter was written. So before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. He was afraid of his fellow Jews. They looked down on him. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Kind of reminded me of earlier, you have duality. Back in the Old Testament, Moses was the leader and Aaron turned aside and got weak and offered the sacrifices, you know, and made this image uh, of the, of the, uh, uh, that they bowed down to. And here in the New Testament, why this happened, Barnabas turned aside at that point too. Paul's uh, second in a sense, but Peter corrected them. When I saw that they were not straightforward, I, I, I said to them, Peter, before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles, Did Peter live in the manner of Gentiles and keeping the Ten Commandments? Did Peter commit adultery and lie and break the Sabbath? Of course not. Brethren, none of this was ever under discussion in in Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Conference. Look for it. It's not under discussion here. It was Jews who were concerned about whether they had to keep the entire law of Moses and even the entire system of Judaism. That's what the thing is about. Not about the Ten Commandments one way or the other. So that's what it was about. And so he said to Peter, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles, that is, Peter did not uh, do all the washings and do everything else the way the strict Jews would do and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Why do you compel them to get circumcised? You have to become a Jew first. You have to get circumcised and say you'll keep the whole system in order to be a first-class Christian? No! You do not have to get physically circumcised first and go through all the Jewish rituals in order to be a first-class Christian. That is wrong. And Paul showed that was wrong all through this letter. And you see that in Acts 15. We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, now, brethren, Jesus Christ said many things that were not politically correct. He talked about not giving your your uh, bread to the dogs, you know. And uh, this Gentile woman came around and finally he healed her child. And that was very politically incorrect. And sinners are the Gentiles. That was very politically incorrect. <laughs> so remember this. Uh, we have to be careful what we say. But that doesn't mean all Gentiles are sinners. I'm not talking, but generally they were cut off from God, as God says, and they did live a different way of life, and they use that expression. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law. And here we get into the part where people get mixed up and where we need to understand. A man is not justified by works of the law. The Greek uh, word here is ergon namu. It literally means physical effort of law. But I want to say this, it's not in the Greek, the works of the law. There's no these. The direct article is not in the Greek. It's works of law. So it could include the Jewish traditions and their other laws that were not part of God's laws at all, and perhaps included the statutes or some of the ritual laws, I mean, of the Old Testament that they were using as a a way of getting righteous. We don't know. And Paul didn't even know for sure who these guys were. He kept saying, who are they? But they were bringing in this whole kind of a system. But works of law, no no, the works of the law, the the is not there. So you're not justified. Here's another thing you need to understand as we go through this book. Maybe I'll cover more of it next time. Justify. You need to understand these words. Sometimes the Protestants try to put their interpretation on words... From the Greek, that were not necessarily interpreted back then the way they try and make out to be. They, they, they saying you're legally correct or there, you're uh, pronounced uh, guilty or pronounced innocent or something like that, like it's a legal decoration, uh, a designation. But not necessarily in the Greek, as I've stated, it just means, it just means that you're, you're made right. And the original word is just like, uh, you know, we used to have these old electric typewriters. They, they had justifying margins. That is, the typewriter would break the sentence with a, an apostrophe and then start at your, your margins were even. The typewriter made your margins even. You were lined up. You were correctly lined up. You are made right with God. You're correctly lined up. You were forgiven your past sins. It doesn't mean you're saved. It means in that moment of real repentance and real baptism, burying your old self, you're made right with God. You're justified, you're made right with God. And sometimes it's used as a legal designation, but not always. So you want to understand that they try to read their Protestant designations or Protestant uh, uh, meanings into these words sometimes. Isn't, you're not justified by ergon namu by works of law, the Jewish laws of rituals or other laws they have added. That doesn't make your past sins forgiven. You don't get your past sins forgiven by that you don't get your past sins forgiven by anything as far as that's concerned except the sacrifice of Jesus Christ but there's one condition as Mr. Armstrong used to say and the world doesn't like to hear that, that they say just believe Billy Graham just says just believe make your decision for Christ no, God says repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Spirit what do you repent of? You repent of sin. Obviously, all the rest of the Bible shows that. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the breaking, the transgression of the law. And when you read about it, what law he's talking about there, it's not the Jewish laws or system. It's the Ten Commandments, which define sin. You repent of breaking the spiritual law of God. And if you really repent, you're not just sorry, like the drunk man that has a hangover on Sunday morning. He's sorry until the hangover goes away, but he wants to go back and get drunk again the next weekend. No, you're so sorry that you make a profound commitment to turn around and go the other way, but this time with God's help through accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for your past sins, knowing God has promised to give you the Holy Spirit to help you overcome those sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises unto you and your children, as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's what it says back in Acts chapter 2 and verses 36 to 38. I can recite that because we had to recite that over and over on the baptizing tours. I haven't forgotten that one. Anyway, that's what God says. So you're justified by faith in Christ, you see, not by works of law. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law. For by works of law shall no flesh be justified. And by the way, I read right over this uh, in verse four. First part of verse 16, knowing a man is not justified by works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek word there, again, look it up as I did again this morning to double check myself. The Greek word, the Greek expression is of, of here and in verse 20. By the faith of Jesus Christ, not just our faith, his faith put in us. That's what justifies you and cleans you up. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we're found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Do we keep right on sinning, which is breaking God's spiritual law, like the Protestants do? Well, you know, we've been saved. So if we make a mistake or, you know, we we want to have love. And my wife and I are having trouble and we don't really love each other, but this pretty blonde woman living next door, she and I have grown to love each other. So it really makes more sense to me to kick my wife out and get me a new model and marry this, this blonde woman and she'll have love and I'll have love and everybody will be happier that way. That's the way the people in this world reason. No, you don't reason that way. You obey God's Ten Commandments, you see. You don't water it down. But at any rate, That's the thing you have to understand. We're not to be breaking God's law because of our forgiveness. Christ is not a minister of sin. Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Transgressor? Transgressor means you're breaking something. Well, what would you be breaking, pray tell? Well, you'd be breaking the law. You'd be breaking the Ten Commandments. And Paul said you shouldn't do that back in Romans chapter 4 and verse 15 Romans chapter 4 and verse 15 if you keep your place but I'll turn this or you can too he says because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law there is no transgression if there is no law there is no standard of conduct that God gives there isn't any sin why would there be a sin unless God says so you're just coming up with your own ideas where there is no law there is no transgression So anyway, that's uh, pretty plain there. And so God is not doing away with His law through Paul. For I, verse 19, through the law died to the law. In other words, through the legal system that God set up to have a lamb, and now the ultimate lamb of God becomes Jesus Christ. I die to the law by accepting Christ's death in payment for my sin, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Again, I'd like to turn to all kinds of scriptures on each one of these, but how are you crucified? Well, you bury your old self in baptism. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. You're buried with him in baptism that the old self dies that you may come up to walk in newness of life. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. So the old self dies. Then he goes on, I've been crucified with Christ. Verse 20. It is no longer I who live. It's not the old self. And brethren, here the word is literally ego, E-G-O. In other words, it's not the old selfish self, the old vain me that's still living. It's not the ego who live. But Christ lives in me. And that is perhaps the most wonderful verse in Galatians as far as that's concerned, because that covers everything if you understand it. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith what? In, no, I've explained the Greek expression here, which many commentaries acknowledge, and this is in the interlinear, look it up, the faith of the Son of God. You don't live by your faith in the Son of God. You live by the faith of the Son of God, who gives you that absolute confidence and strength to have God live in you the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. No, we don't try to get saved by keeping statutes and washings and animal sacrifices. For if righteousness comes through doing all these physical works, whatever they are, then Christ died in vain. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Why are you turning aside so quickly, Paul said, before whose eyes Jesus Christ is clearly portrayed among you as crucified. He said, I tried to make that plain to you. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Did I tell you or Barnabas or other ministers that you had to go through a whole series of washings and animal sacrifices and other do's and don'ts that Jews had added before you were converted, you Gentiles over in Perga and Pamphylia and Antioch and Pisidia, no they hadn't been taught that at all many of them had their lives changed as they came out of paganism by simply repenting of a spiritual sin and accepting jesus christ as their savior they hadn't had to go through all of that no you didn't get it that way are you so foolish having begun in the spirit are you being made perfect in the flesh by which you've suffered so many things in vain if indeed it is in vain some of them have been persecuted Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you works and works miracles among you, that is, perhaps faithful ministers as Paul and Barnabas, maybe some faithful elders were still there doing that, does he do it by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? The ones that are performing miracles have faith in God and they're not basing it on how many sacrifices they can offer or stuff like that. You see, Paul is pointing that out. <clears throat> Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, brethren, people often twist that which the Protestants do over and over. Was Abraham just believing in God and some kind of an empty faith? No, he was not. He believed God, meaning he believed all about God and what God said and what God intended. And therefore, God honored him and because he was willing to do that. It was not empty faith. As it says back in Genesis 26, write this down Genesis 26 5, God told Isaac later, in Genesis 26 5, I blessed Abraham with all these blessings because Abraham kept my statutes, my commandments, my teachings, and my laws. Abraham obeyed God. You find also, if you would turn back to James, the book of James, what kind of faith did Abraham have? Did he have empty faith? Just believe and have, you know, like, again, the Protestant ministers come along. Just believe, just believe. No, it's not that kind of faith that he had at all. It says here in James chapter 2, verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by what? Oh, the Protestants don't like this verse. Look for it in their writings. You don't find it very often. Was not Abraham, was our father justified by works? was he not when he offered Isaac his son on the altar you see he did something God was so real to him he was willing in his heart to sacrifice even his own son it was living faith and so that is the is the point do you see that faith was working together with his works you see living faith and by works faith was made perfect but did he keep God's commandments yes Genesis 26, 5 said he did. So it was living faith. He believed God, but he did what God said. And the Scripture was fulfilled, verse 23, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Why? Because he had this living faith, which he had justified. You see then that a man is justified by works. Get this. Your Bible, a man is justified by works. And not by faith only, so is faith and works working together when you understand it, and that's what the Bible teaches us, and yet the Protestants and Joe Jr and all the good guys in Pasadena they'll they'll figure that out someday, maybe in the great White Throne judgment, we can hope the best for them, <laughs> but anyway, they have twisted all these things around that they were taught, okay, Abraham believed God, it was accounted him for righteousness back in Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Yes, you've got to have that living faith. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the nations and when it uses that expression it means the Gentiles. He would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Because back then there weren't any Jews. again the protestant ministers and people don't really think about that how many jews were there in abraham's day zero abraham had isaac and isaac had jacob and jacob had 12 sons great the great grandsons of abraham and one of those 12 grandsons was named judah from whom the jews come so you didn't have any jews in abraham's time until you get to his great grandsons that's when the jews began so again people they don't really ever really study this book to understand those things but at any rate uh, get back here to galatians again better get watch my digression so i don't lose my place so those who are of faith are blessed with believing abraham for as many as are of the works of the law verse 10 here are under the curse Uh, works of law again ergon namu they were in this physical works now some of you know I better not take time to turn there but if you want to write it down uh, I guess this will save time to have you write it down and look it up if you want to it's uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verses 7 to 12 Hebrews chapter 9 verses 7 to 12 gives these washings and sacrifices that they had to go through which Paul describes and Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4, uh, the same thing. I might turn to that one. It's a little, just a briefer part. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, what law? He's talking... By the way, here's another word you need to understand. When the Bible says law, what law is it talking about? The law in the Greek language is exactly the same as the law in English language. When I say law... How do you know what kind of law I'm talking about? By the context, if someone bangs on the door and they say, open up in the name of the law, what do you think that law is talking about? You think it means the police enforcing the civil law. If you get a traffic ticket, they're talking about the traffic law. If you get in trouble with the IRS, your income tax, you're talking about the national law. If you're talking about falling off a building, you're talking about the law of gravity. You see, there are lots of laws, different kinds. Of, we just read the word law. In Greek, they just use the word namos, N-O-M-O-S. And you don't know what kind of law it means except by the context, by the whole subject it's talking about. So, the law, and it was talking here about the whole system of law through the book of Hebrews, including their animal sacrifices and washings having a shadow of good things to come. It just pointed out the need for an animal sacrifice, a need for a blood sacrifice, I should say. The Lamb of God Christ took care of that, and the washings, typifying the ultimate spiritual washings of the Holy Spirit, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually. They kept offering animals, animals, animals. Christ just came and died once. Make those who approach it perfect. For then they would not have to, have ceased to be offered, so they'd have to be offered all the time from here on for the worshippers once purred would have no consciousness of sins, but if those sacrifices are in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. You see it was a kind of a schoolmaster, it taught them that they were guilty, they needed to have a payment and here is this animal had to die, and they saw its blood being shed, and that pointed toward the messiah. And then they had the washings, which showed them they had to be cleaned up, pointing toward the Holy Spirit and the spiritual forgiveness. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So that's the key. That's what he's talking about here. This whole system, the entire system of sacrifices and washings and any other thing connected with that system that is what was done away, and does not need to be kept anymore. For as many of the works of the law, relying on these animal sacrifices and washings and other things, uh, as are of it, relying on it for salvation, are under the curse. Why are they under the curse? Because that was bad to offer those that not necessarily. But if that's all they're relying on, that does not forgive spiritual sin. The only thing that forgives spiritual sin is God dying for us, our Creator giving His life for His creation. And when Christ came in the human flesh as Emmanuel, God with us, His life is worth more than all of our lives put together. So He died for us as the ultimate sacrifice. So you're under the curse because you're guilty if that's all you're relying on. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Well, what's he talking about? Is he saying you're cursed if you don't keep the Ten Commandments or something? No. You turn back to what he's quoting. Here's the key again, brethren, another key. If you go through this book, and in my Bible, it's often printed in here. If it's not, I print it in myself. It will tell you to turn back to the Scripture this is being quoted from. Then you know what Paul was talking about because he is directly quoting Old Testament Scriptures. And he says, you're cursed if you don't do all these things. And where is this co- coming from? The exact words are back here in Deuteronomy 27 where Paul, I mean, uh, Deuter- uh, uh, God's different tribes begin to give these curses, the blessings and curses. And it says, "Cursed curse is the one who makes any carved or molded image in verse 14 and And uh, verse 19, Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due to the stranger. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal and all this thing. And then it comes down here to verse 26. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law, and all the people shall say, Amen. That's what he's quoting from. What's the law about? Is that the law of sacrifices? No. It's the statutes, you see. So you are not saved by keeping the statutes in the letter. You're not keeping by the animal sacrifices. You're not saved by keeping all the traditions of the, of the Gentiles either. Any kind of works that you do does not justify you, does not make you right from your sins. The only thing that makes you right from your sins is the shed blood of Jesus the Christ, that's what forgives your past sins. So you see, he's not just talking about animal sacrifices. He's talking about the statutes, the whole ball of wax, the whole system is what he's talking about. Okay, going on, verse 11 here, Galatians three eleven. but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident well what do you mean justified by the law well the law is the entire Bible in a larger sense and the law sometimes means the whole first five books of the Bible in another sense the Jews often use the entire first five books of the Bible and call it the law but no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident so you're not justified by keeping any of these things for the just shall live by faith you've got to have faith in Christ and what he did Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live in them. So is he talking just about animal sacrifices and washings and so on? No. He's talking about the whole ball of wax because that is quoted from what? This latter part, the man who does them shall live by them. That's quoted from Leviticus 18, verse 5. And he says, Uh, in verse 3 according to the doings of the land of Egypt you shall not do and you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances and walk in them you shall therefore keep my statutes and judgments did the statutes have to do with animal sacrifices and washings no those were ordinances the statutes had to do with the civil law of of, uh, Israel and you were supposed to put a railing around your balcony. If you had a flat balcony where someone would fall off, or you were to, if you didn't have a toilet, you know, we say a, 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 a john outside as they did, you're supposed to go out and cover up your refuse, being very plain. They had all kinds of things like that, statutes, a way of life that they were taught to keep plain. It wasn't just washings and sacrifices. So he said, you shall observe my statutes and ordinances, I am the eternal, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, excuse me, which if a man do, he shall live by them. I am the eternal. And then he began to go on and quote some of them again. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. You're not to uncover your fathers, your daughters, your daughter-in-laws. And it says down here, which the Protestants don't like to hear about, Uh, verse 22 you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination that's a statute of God an abomination God calls it so anyway homosexuality so the statutes were physical laws of the nation based on the principle of the Ten Commandments but it's all part of the system I remember late one Friday afternoon Mr. Armstrong came to my office and Denny Luker was there with me and was my assistant at that time and uh, he had his Bible and was very humble in a sense and as he often was and he, he, he knew I was teaching epistles class and he says, Rod, I know you're going to all this technical stuff more than I've had time to do and I I wanted to cover the book of Galatians tonight <laughs> and can you tell me your latest understanding of that? I He'd heard from some of the students I'd learned some of this so I explained it to him and he, he did use that That night in the headquarters Bible study, I was there and heard him. I thought, well, he's helped me learn the whole way of life. I helped him learn a few technical points once in a while, as Dr. Hay did too, even more than I. But anyway, we grow, and we're supposed to grow in grace and in knowledge. So anyway, verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. If you keep that law, you see, it's just something that the whole system is not based on faith necessarily. But the man who does them shall live by them. That's what I just quoted. I'm sorry. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This uh, guy that writes these prophecy things, I need to bring that next time. It wasn't Tim LaHaye. I think it was this other guy. Wrote one of the most blasphemous things I've ever read, frankly. He uses this scripture to call the Ten Commandments a curse he calls the Ten Commandments a curse by using this scripture it's not talking about the Ten Commandments Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law it didn't say the law is a curse it's the curse of the law the curse that the law puts on something or someone having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree what's he talking about He's talking about if you are a a vile criminal or one who's executed as that normally you would be a vile criminal. And that's considered, of course, a curse uh, that you are hung on the tree because of your uh, vile sin. And you're therefore executed in that sense. And let me see if I can find this uh, back there. Deuteronomy 21, this time if you want to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is where that comes from. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. See, he's been doing some vile act. He's a murderer or rapist or something. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. You see, that man was is under the curse of death. What is the wages? You know, Romans six twenty three. The wages of sin is death. Under the Old Testament, was physical death under the judgment of the judges in Israel, and so the man was considered under the curse of the death penalty if he did something that brought on the death penalty. It didn't mean God's law was a curse. it man, the man was under the curse of death for breaking that. Uh, that uh, spiritual law but put in the form of a statute in this case in ancient Israel so cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith so we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith you see not just by doing all these works I think I'll stop there because I believe we're getting yes close to the time And I'll try to take a little less time in the background next time and then try to go on and finish the book. But I think this can give you the keys to Galatians. You look back and see where these scriptures are quoted from and then you begin to know what law, what statute, what is this Paul's really talking about. He's not talking about anything to do away with the Ten Commandments at all. And Paul makes it very clear throughout the his own writings when you look at all of it, as you see later in this very book, the Ten Commandments are binding. They're a way of life. And the best scripture of all, as I've said, in the book of Galatians is Galatians 2, verse 20. And you who come regularly have heard me say that again and again. Galatians two 20. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. Yet I live. I'm still living. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of, not just faith in, But I live with the very faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So that's the big thing. We've got to really repent of our sins, breaking God's spiritual law, receive God's Spirit, and then have Christ live His life in us. And I don't want to bore you with this technical thing, but I think once in a while it's good to get into these Scriptures so you really understand some of the so-called difficult scriptures that the Protestant world has been so deceived about. So you cannot be deceived and we don't have thousands leaving us later on who don't understand these books. So we'll try to finish this book next time and uh, get get it all finished up.